37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 202 of Pixelated Paranormal. The episode where we were supposed to talk about late-night sultry things, but instead we're going to have to wait because Steven had to take the night off to move into his new place. So we kicked him out of the backseat of the car and left him, <laughs> you know, on the side of the road like a little bitch. <laughs> yeah, insert sound of door slamming here and tires peeling out. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, we're happy for Steve. Steve's getting into a new place now. It's going to be really awesome. Uh, of course, a big truck drove by right when I said that. But yeah, it's going to be it's going to be good for him uh, getting into a new place. Um, so we're super stoked for him. So as we always do, we made a promise to talk about one thing, and here we are talking about something else. So we should probably just stop promising things. Yeah. At the end of episodes. <laughs> we get to it. Anyway, we get to it. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. Probably next episode, actually. But um, any whoozle, presto, you sent me a pretty interesting link about some mummies being discovered in some mines. And so tell me a little bit more about that, because this is actually um, what planted the seed for today's episode and our topic. Yeah, so uh, salt mummies and other preserved body parts, uh, <laughs> like heads and foots. And then I came across modern tales of mummification. And then a local mummified body here in Kansas that most people don't know about. So, oh yeah. So, it looks like mummies have kind of been a favorite topic of ours uh, inadvertently because we've devoted more than a few episodes to talking about mummies and body parts and stuff like that. Uh, most recently, episode one fifty six: Are you my mummy and other sideshow stories? Uh, we talked about the guy whose body was. Um, <laughs> sent all the way to like a, uh, a theme park and used as a theme park attraction in a haunted house that was the inspiration for uh, Skeletor. Skeletor. Yeah. Um, ah. All sorts of crazy stuff. On episode 106, You Oughtn't Play With Dead Things, we talked about Carl Tanzler and his mummified lover, Elena Hoyo. And then on episode 73, we talked about Mother Nature's Wonders or Muddy Mistress Medusa. And we got into the bog bodies and also petrified animals of Lake Natron. And even back on episode 34, Pygmies, Birdies, and Bowies, uh, we talked about Pedro the Mystery Being, which is another one I'd like to uh, redo because I feel like we could do a little bit better research than we did way back when. Oh, yeah. But yeah, and all sorts of stuff here and there and in between about mummies. So that's what we're going to get after today. More fun facts about mummies, both from the olden day and some more modern cases. So presto, why don't you take it away with the salt mummy? Yeah, so 1993, miners at the Shirabid salt mine in Zanjan province of Iran discovered a body, really just a head. And uh, it was clearly a man. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the body had flowing white hair and a beard and was sporting a single golden earring like a fucking pirate. 
though he huh. didn't initially appear that old, carbon dating showed that he had died around 300 A.D., which is like Holy shit, yeah, like two thousand years ago, and uh, the man had likely died from being crushed by a rock collapse, and his body had been effectively mummified by the dry salinity of the air. Unlike Egyptian uh, mummification practices, where the body was wrapped in fabric and coated in preserving oils, the salt mummy was preserved naturally, like a tasty hunk of beef jerky. That's right. The salt <laughs> from the mines leached the moisture from his skin, leaving behind his dried remains. Due to the lack of fresh air and uh, the layers of salt in the mines, the body had gone underserved for centuries and was extremely well preserved. Since the first salt mummy was discovered, five more have been found, all within the same area as the first. The second body was discovered in 2004 only 50 feet from the first one, and two more were found in 2005 and another two in 2007. One of them was a woman, ooh la la. And then in uh, <laughs> 2008, mining practices were halted to like, dude, fuck you guys and your mining rights. This is a haven of archaeology right here. And uh, this allowed researchers full access to the salt mummies. The finds quickly became important ones for Iranian archaeologists as they offered insights into historical mining practices as well as natural mummification. They also offered new information on ancient men's diet because the bodies were so well preserved, some of their internal organs were still intact. Whoa. This is kind of, yeah, this is kind of gross because researchers were even able to find remnants of the 2200-year-old mummy's stomach that contained <laughs> tapeworm eggs. Signaling that his diet was high in raw or undercooked meat. Not like the sushi that wow. you like to eat at your local restaurant, but he was probably <laughs> eating some uncooked goat or lamb or sheep or whatever they had in the area. Yeah, rabbits or whatever. Hey, man, Oof. I roll the dice every time I have a tuna steak because there's no better way to cook a giant eight-ounce slab of tuna than just have the chef sear both sides for about a minute and a half each, slap some wasabi aioli on that bad boy, and then oh, just yeah. take a breath and dive into it like fucking Smeagol. Oh, yeah. Mm. that's yeah. Uh, I like my uh, tuna steak medium rare myself, so. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, buddy. Mm-hmm. That's the good stuff. So, along with the bodies, the salt also preserved the artifacts that were with them when they died. Researchers were able to recover a leather boot with one foot still inside. Um, <laughs> yes. Iron knives, a woolen trouser leg, a silver needle, a sling, leather rope, a grindstone, a walnut, pottery shards, and patterned textile fragments. Of the six mummies discovered, four of them are currently on display. The archaeological archaeology museum of Zanjan is home to three of the men and uh, the woman, as well as some of the artifacts. The original salt mummy's head and left foot are on display at the National Museum of Iran in uh, Tehran. The sixth salt mummy to be discovered uh, remains in the mine as he was too fragile to be removed. And uh, researchers don't believe the saltmen all died together, though they do share some similarities. The first man probably died around 300 AD, 
Well, the oldest body dated back to 9,550 BC. So that's like, uh, you know, 12,000 years ago. So that's a pretty old Holy piece of beef. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really old piece of beef turkey right there. Wow. That's interesting as shit, man. Um, yeah. I wonder if the foot they found inside the boot, they did like that bar where they did the sour toe cocktail. Do you remember that? Mm, that would be one salty drink if they did, though. Mm. Oh. Mm. Uh, oh. For those of you who have not dove back into our backlog, there is a notorious sour toe cocktail, which is a shot of alcohol containing the dehydrated severed human toe served up in downtown hotel's sourdough saloon in the great city of Dawson in the Yukon Territory. Um, it started off in 1973 after a riverboat captain named Dick Stevenson found a preserved toe in an abandoned Yukon cabin. The toe was thought to belong to a 1920s-era bootlegger named Louis Linkton, and thus the Sour Toe Cocktail was started. And basically, you buy the drink, and then you have to at least let the severed pickled toe touch your lip before you finish the drink in order to get credibility that you drank the Sour Toe Cocktail. Mm. Yep. You can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but your lips must touch the toe, is their slogan. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, good stuff. Now, something else kind of cool is we actually have a salt mine here nearby in Hutchison, Kansas. Have you been up to Stratica before? Um, no, the, um, the uh, Blake went on a field trip and um, several years ago and like brought home like chunks of salt. Um, I find it interesting that the mine preserves things so well, like human bodies, that <laughs> um, we actually, uh, the Hutchison mine, you know, they have like the original um, film reels for like um, Star Wars, um, the the wizard of Oz, they have like movie sets and like mm -hmm. other things like, you know, if the world goes to shit, like Kansas is the place to be because after fallout <laughs> happens, we can just go to the mine and be like, here's all the technology, baby. Yeah, exactly. Well, the Stratica museum, formerly known as the Kansas underground salt museum is in Hutchison, Kansas, where if you go take a tour after you slap on a hard hat and you put on an emergency breathing device that you have to use only in emergencies, you can jump on an elevator along with 14 other people and travel 650 feet below the earth's surface into a very unique cave carved out from a giant salt deposit that formed to formed an estimated 275 million years ago. It's one of only 15 salt mines in the U.S., but apparently it's the only one that's actually accessible to tourists. The rest of them are either too dangerous or being actively used to harvest and mine salt. Now, you mentioned, Presto, the underground vault and storage gallery. Mm -hmm. You can go down underneath this salt museum into the salt mine, and it actually houses a small museum where they have... Original camera negatives of movies like Gone with the Wind and Ben-Hur, as well as several old masters of television TV shows. They also store medical records, oil and gas charts, and many other valuable documents 
from all 50 states and also foreign countries. And the reason why they use this as a very, very specific storage vault and museum is because the security alone is almost invaluable. It's 650 feet below the Earth's surface with really only one way in. It is a 15-person elevator. So in order for you to steal something, it'd have to be a very long and boring heist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a perfect setup of humidity and salt content, and the temperature is just perfect for uh, for preserving things. Also, like some of the costumes from Batman and Robin, I think, including Batman's suit, Mr. Freeze's suit, as well as some of the costumes from The Matrix and other movies as well. Can you imagine like trying to like heist out of that and you're like, all right, guys, let's get into the elevator. And then all of a sudden it's like, dun, 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 like that really bad elevator music. And you're right. sitting there looking at your watch. You're like, yep, it's going to be a long ride down. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Police are just impatiently waiting at the top, tapping their feet after you have to go down that stupid, you know, it takes a minute and a half just to go down the elevator. Damn. And then 2,000 years from now, you're going to find the preserved corpses of, you know, bandits and robbers who are stuck in little random catacombs. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you mentioned that this kind of sets aside from normal Egyptian mummies. And I wanted to put some fun facts in here about Egyptian mummies, because we're not really going to talk about Egyptian mummies after this, right? Right. Awesome. Well, have you ever really wondered about how bodies were processed for mummification, Preston? I bet you haven't because you, just like me, are fascinated by this kind of stuff. <laughs> yep. I know but all dear about listeners, it. <laughs> me too. Man, I I actually have known the ins and outs in great detail of mummification because of a beautifully, wonderfully amazing third and fourth grade teacher I had named Mrs. Frances Barrier. Um, back when I was in grade school at Jefferson Elementary in El Dorado, Kansas, uh, in third and fourth grade, at the end of the year, we had what they called travel day. And basically every classroom picked a country. And through the entire year, you would learn about your specific country. And Mrs. Barrier always chose Egypt. And I don't know, it was one of those kind of situations where she treated the students kind of like adults in a way. Mm -hmm. And within reason, um, really gave us the the real deal when it came to a lot of stuff, including how to make a mummy. So I have been enthralled by this ever since. So the best process is this one, guys. As much as possible of the brain is taken out through the nose with an iron hook. What can't be reached with the hook is then washed out with drugs. Next, a flank is opened up with a flint knife. But here's a fun fact. We're all led to believe that you've got these, you know, scribes and doctors down there cutting open bodies and removing organs, putting them into little ceramic jars. That's not quite true. The fun fact I discovered is that cutting open the body of the deceased was actually against the law due to how the Egyptians valued the dead and worshipped the deceased. So they had to use what was known as a cutter. Somebody who would have the sole job of literally cutting open the deceased body and then turning around, and because they broke the law, they had to run their ass off and escape an angry mob because they just defiled a body. So they'd turn around and run as fast as they can while being chased with people with rods and pitchforks being pelted with handfuls of rocks 
because these people wanted to beat their asses, even though they were just doing their job, because they broke a core belief of the Egyptian religion, which is to not defile a deceased's body. Damn. So the scribe, the person responsible for laying the body down, would place the body and prepare it, marking the left flank where it's about to be cut. Then you have your cutter, uh, slit open a fresh cut, and as law commands, with the Ethiopian stone knife, similar to a scalpel these days, they'd make the incision, drop the knife, and then turn around and run as fast as they can so they too would not die and end up on a table being cut open. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, the entire contents of the abdomen would be removed. The cavity is then thoroughly washed and cleaned with a palm wine, and then again with an infusion of ground-up spices. After that, it's filled up with pure mirth, cassia, and every other aromatic substance they had nearby, except for frankincense, and then sewn up. After which, the body be placed in natron, or uh, in nitron, nitron, natron, nitron, covered entirely over for several days. Now, some people argue it's 70 days, some argue 35, but anyway, they're placing the body in natron, that way it would pretty much preserve the body. After the period passes, the body is then washed and wrapped in strips of linen, and the bottom side is then smeared and sealed with gum. It's then conditioned and given back to the family, who has already prepared a sarcophagus to place the body in, and bada boom bada bing, you now have a mummy. Wow. But I had no idea about the cutter. Uh, I didn't, <laughs> while we were researching different mummy facts, I discovered that and thought it was pretty interesting. The cutter. The cutter. What is your job? I'm a cutter. <laughs> well, they're putting oh. on a brand new pair of Nikes. Damn. So I had no idea that these things existed. And then um, we're going to talk about black mummies. <laughs> and... uh. It's not what you think, so don't 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 jump to conclusions here. Just give me a second to explain <laughs> what we're talking about. Bear with us here. Not yeah. the best name for a mummy, right? And uh, so you know the Egyptians may have had the monopoly on mum- mummies, but there are older examples. And the mighty Atacama Desert it has a cemetery in northern Chile, which is the one resting place of the mysterious Chinchuro culture. So living in uh, Chile and Peru around 9,000 years ago, they apparently sustained themselves by hunting, gathering, and fishing. And they also created some distinctive-looking mummies known as the Black Mummies. So why are they called Black Mummies? Well... This process that they use is thought to predate Egyptian practices by approximately 2,000 years. The black came from uh, the manganese, which is a metal paint used as a fine coat after the body had been prepared. Uh, Mummification was elaborate and macabre, with the deceased turned into kind of a jar. Um, the head and limbs were removed and the insides were taken out. So they didn't have a cutter. They didn't have to worry about any of that. And in, <laughs> they had a jar opener. <laughs> yeah. So instead of, uh, you know, going up the nose, they made a, a hole in the skull to get the brain. As described by National Geographic, the skin was peeled away from the body and then later reattached, like taking off and putting on a sock. 
Um, Smithsonian, yeah, Smithsonian.com uh, picks up the story saying they would then fill out the body with plants, clay, and wood before, before sewing the skin back on and covering the face with a mask. Just because the mummies are ancient doesn't mean they aren't affected by the modern world. Changing weather patterns are believed to be contributing to the deterioration. As humidity in their uh, formerly dry environment rises, so a, a museum is being built to prevent the black mummies from uh, becoming puddles of black ooze. And uh, That's you can insane. You can see in that picture right there um, that I have down at the bottom. The they basically after they you know did the mummification process, they just layered this black paint like layer upon layer, almost like a mud. And then as it uh-huh. dried, it naturally kind of like the salt, it dried out the skin. And then created this protective barrier. Uh, so, yeah. That's so strange. And it literally looks like you described. They skin the body, throw away the insides, and stuff it back up like a scarecrow. Yeah, those are some weird-looking nipples on that mummy right there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> somebody Whoa. had to say it. Well, Preston, after you have your mummy, whether it be a black manganese mummy, a salt mummy, or a traditional Egyptian mummy, what am some... What am... What are some fun things you can do with a mummy? Um, I don't know. Carry it around with you. Show it off to all your friends at a dinner party. Um, <laughs> like weekend a, at Bernie's. Yeah, unleash a curse on uh, <laughs> the world. I mean, there's tons of stuff you can do. That's true. Well, we've already clearly established that much of ancient Egyptian culture revolved around life after death and preserving the body afterwards. So why not in this day and age, completely disregard their precious beliefs and turn their precious dead corpses into a public spectacle, eh? Because that's what we do because we're all just a bunch of bastards. Mm. During the Victorian age, it was not uncommon for mummies to be sold or traded and then unwrapped on a stage in quote-unquote academic settings, usually with the intention of learning more about ancient Egypt. But you couldn't do it in the privacy of your own room or, you know, a classroom. You had to put them on a stage, charge people a buck or two, and do it in front of God and everybody. Jerry, what are you doing this evening? Well, Tom, I'm going down to the museum to watch them bust a tut. <laughs> you know, King Tut, boom, boom, boom. Ah, uh, I love it. I love it. That needs to be one of our greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing tonight? I'm busting a tut. <laughs> Oh, busting a tut. These <laughs> exhibitions <laughs> were fascinating to the public, and they were often attended by plenty of people who weren't exactly actively involved in Egyptian scholarship of any kind. So just like you said, Jerry could go down, pitch a couple nickels in the bucket, and watch them bust a tut. <laughs> Thomas Pettigrew, a well-known Whoa, surgeon. Is that, was... the, is that the guy from uh, Harry Potter, Pettigrew? <laughs> Peter Pettigrew. Yeah. <laughs> Peter's cousin Thomas Pettigrew, a well-known surgeon at the time, was most known for hosting these events, which he called unrollings, (laughs) instead of busting a tut. (laughs) Unrollings, where he unwrapped mummies and performed autopsies for enormous audiences. Thankfully, the appeal of all these kinds of events actually wore off in the early 1900s, and it wasn't quite as common after that. But as weird as it sounds, 
nothing compares to what was done to the bodies after the unwrappings were done. So Preston, I'm going to take your story about the black mummies. I'm going to mix it with old Thomas Pettigrew's uh, exhibitions and see how I combine the two together. After mummies were purchased, after they were unwrapped, and ultimately worthless after these unwrapping parties went on, the bodies were often sold to manufacturers. Now you're going to ask yourself, what could a manufacturer do with a bunch of dried up unwrapped mummy corpses? Well, the answer is pretty grotesque, but also amazing and fascinating to Preston and I and other artists. You see, after they were purchased, these mummy remains would be ground up and used to create paint pigments literally called mummy brown. Ooh. According to an article published by Scientific America, artists would use a paint in their actual art without understanding the source of the color on the tube. It was said to be a very... Uh, it was said to be a highly variable pigment between raw umber and burnt umber. So some of the older paintings that you may have seen hanging around your house or museums may have possibly been created using parts of a dead mummy's body. (gasps) Such as Martin Drolling's 1815 painting, Interior of a Kitchen. The article goes on to explain that because uh, it was a figurative color, mummy brown actually faded fairly easily. The result was diminished. Uh, the result diminished interest in the paint from artists, knowing that over time the paint would fade from a darker brown to a lighter brown. But that didn't stop paint manufacturers from still making this stuff. It wasn't until 1960s that paint companies stopped producing mummy brown, but only because they simply ran out of fresh corpses. Well, we better get our asses to the desert and start digging some motherfuckers up because, <laughs> you, uh, you know, color me intrigued. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to call you Mummy Brown, in fact. That's the color of intriguement. <laughs> um, Shayla's dad just told us a story the other day at lunch where apparently her granddad found a an Indian, a Native American um, corpse out in the middle of the uh, out in the middle of nowhere one day when he was driving in his truck in Texas. Really? He drove by, he saw a white shiny thing he thought was bone, so he pulled the truck over, got out, walked up, and discovered that it was indeed the skull cap of a body. So he kind of pushed the dirt around and realized it was probably a Native American body, so he actually reached out to the um, to a local tribe. They came out and excavated the area and discovered that it was indeed the buried body of a local native, um, probably a Cherokee, they thought. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, granddad's passed, so I wasn't able to actually, you know, call and ask him about it. But yeah, kind of a cool deal. Yeah. But anyway, if you thought paint was bizarre, well, boys, girls, ghouls, gals, we're going to get a little bit more macabre. Because if you thought the weirdest use for ancient Egyptian corpses was publicly desecrating them or grinding them into paint, you're completely wrong. Back in the 17th century, mummies were also ground up to create Baroque equivalents to Tylenol, thought to cure practically anything from a headache to internal bleeding. Mm. The mummy's skull was especially valuable, with the moss that sometimes grew on it after a burial because the moss was thought to have impeccable healing qualities. The moss would be ground up, and ingested to get rid of nosebleeds and symptoms associated with epilepsy. 
neither of which are life or death situations that might justify eating the gooey gunk that grows in the back of a dead man's head. Mm. But that's not all. These corpses, supposedly, he had healing powers that went beyond the realm of the physical and entered into that of the spiritual. According to Clive Gifford's book, Killer History, a subsequent a substance called mummy powder or mummy dust was in high demand among the wealthy ever since the 12th century. In fact, England's King Charles II believed the small mummy particles in mummy powder contained the secret to greatness. He often rubbed the powder on his skin so he could absorb the ancient greatness of the pharaohs. Meanwhile, a few hundred years earlier, France's King Francis the first, drank a mix of dried rhubarb and mummy powder every day because he thought it kept him strong and safe from assassins trying to take his life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now, the last little bit I have here to share with you guys about mummies is a little thing I like to call the Franken-mummy. The Egyptians may have been the most famous culture to practice mummification, but they weren't the only ones. Back in 2001, scientists actually discovered several 3,000-year-old mummies on an island near Scotland. But that's not the strange part, Presto. What's weird here is these Scottish mummies were in fact, according to National Geographic, made up of several different bodies. Apparently, these Franken-mummies Frankenstein mummies were originally mummified in a bog before being reburied 300 to 600 years later. Researchers have opinions on what exactly occurred here, but essentially after doing autopsies on the bodies, people discovered that you may have, you know, the torso and head and arms of one body, but then you would have the legs and bottom half of the body of a completely different person. Sometimes they were mixed between both men and women in one body. And another far-fetched theory is even more bizarre, that they would basically take the deceased and mix up the body parts and build custom skeletons so that if the bodies were unearthed later, it would show that they had better lineage and better physical traits than what the family actually had. So let's say like you had a brother or a sister who had, you know, some kind of physical deformity back in those days, and you didn't want people to know that they were a hunchback or maybe they were a cripple. So after they died, you would get rid of the bad body parts, replace them with better body parts, and then you could be like, oh, no, Terry, no, Terry wasn't a two-headed hunchback. Look, and you could exhume the body and show them the skeleton showing a very healthy, normal human skeleton. Hmm. But, you know, that's not the weirdest thing families do with their deceased. Presto, why don't you tell us a more modern story about Rosalia Lombardo? Yep, Rosaria Lombardo is the mummy of an Italian girl um, who died of pneumonia at the age of two years old. It is said that her father was so devastated that he approached a very famous embalmer, Dr. Alfredo Saliafia, to preserve her body. Yeah, not bad. And we're getting better at this pronunciation (laughs) shit, right? Yeah. No, we're not. No, we're not. The body (laughs) is so well preserved that it seems she's only sleeping and thus has earned her the nickname of Sleeping Beauty. 
Her technique the, uh, of her preservation remained a mystery for over 90 years until it was discovered that she was vaccinated with formalin, zinc salts, alcohol, salicylic uh, acid, and uh, <laughs> salicylic acid and glycerin. And when you look at the the photo that we'll include in the show notes, like holy shit, mm-hmm. that that body is like super well preserved. Like wow. Yeah, it's bizarre. I'm trying to think of the catacombs she was taken to because pretty much roughly shortly after she died, her body was then rushed to the Capuchin catacombs in Sicily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And due to just the climate of the catacombs and that bizarre cocktail that, you know, remained a mystery for like, what'd you say, about 100 years? Yeah, like 90 years. Um, yeah, it all prevented the growth of mold. And then the magic ingredient zinc gave the body its rigidity, essentially turning the whole thing into wax. Which is probably what old uh, Carl Panzler tried to attempt when he made that papier-mâché lover of his Mm. uh, that went very wrong. Yeah. But because of the real nature of the near-perfect mummification of Rosalia's body, some skeptics actually claim that the real body was replaced with an entire wax replica. But uh, apparently they did some x-rays of the body and discovered that for the first time in history, it is indeed not only a skeletal structure, but her organs are also preserved and petrified intact. Her brain was perfectly visible, having only shrunk about 50% due to the strange mummification process that the embalmer did. And back in 2009, a National Geographic documentary had an MRI performed on the body, producing the first 3D images of Rosalia's body both inside and out. And in 2009, the MRI did confirm that indeed, yes, her organs are perfectly intact. She does have a skeleton, and she indeed is a real girl who's been sealed inside this coffin under glass for 90 years. Hmm. Oh, it's so bizarre, dude. And then adding something even stranger is the fact that her eyes are actually opening on her own accord. Really? Yeah. They've taken several time-lapse photos um, over a long period of time. And it says that supposedly over the course of the 90 years, um, her eyes have opened at least more than one-eighth of an inch, revealing that her eyes, her very beautiful blue eyes are actually completely intact and preserved as well. Oh, now it's not ghosts, you know, unfortunately, it's just the fact that over that amount of time, the skin has shrank ever so slightly, thus causing the seal of her eyelids to open and, you know, reveal the actual blue eyes. But if you, uh, optical illusion, it's creepy. If you go back and look at that salt mummy, that the picture of the head that I posted, Mm-hmm, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you can see it on that one, but several of the sites that I looked at, um, there was one where they had a close up, and you could actually see what looks like a brown eyeball sitting inside that mummified head. Like the salt preserved it so well that yeah, uh, even even the earlobe um, still had enough strength to hold in the the gold earring. Um, yeah, so it, it's just kind of creepy to see that decapitated head with the brown eyeball. So I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. That that uh, you know that that girl has to be like what a hundred years old now, and so the yeah, fact... I mean yeah yeah ninety three or ninety four by now yeah ugh 
Ugh. Ugh. Well, if you ever find yourself in Sicily, you can visit the girl in glass, a.k.a. Sleeping Beauty, a.k.a. the world's most beautiful mummy, Rosalia Lombardo, in the Sicilian catacombs, where her body is still preserved under glass. So, speaking of people preserved in glass, um, actually, I had a neighbor at one point that uh, his uh, daughter... Uh, she was like a translator and she uh, was flown over to Russia. And so he went and visited mm-hmm. her. And so v- Vladimir Lenin is, um, you know, basically kind of like a, a Russian hero. You know, he's like one of the political figures of the 20th century. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's known as the architect of, you know, the USSR and communism. Um, he was such yeah. a popular guy and so well, swell do. guy, yeah, swell guy that they're like, we must preserve his body for the, you know, for Mother Russia forever, and um, so a lot of people didn't really understand the process, and it, it's really, you know, the only mummification that's been carried into modern times. Like, there's not too many examples of like modern day mummification. And, um, you know, his body required several chemical baths and injections to keep it undamaged. Mm-hmm. But what they don't tell you is at night when they when they close down the museum, you know, the museum to where, like, you know, you can't go and look at the body anymore. Yeah. They actually lower the glass coffin down and they have like scientists on hand that basically pump out the old embalming fluid and then pump new and bombing fluid back in and then in the morning when the you know museum or mortuary opens back up like the mausoleum they basically raise the body back up on a platform and then people come in and are like oh my god he looks like he just died and uh yeah it's because they keep pumping him full of shit every day <laughs> so I mean, pretty much, yeah. They spent a very long time bathing his body in formalin, um, potassium acetate, and glycerin. Um, Basically, here's the process. I googled it really quick. For several days, Lennon's body was covered with cotton wool soaked in formalin, after which it was placed in a bath with 3% formaldehyde solution. To deeply impregnate the muscle with formalin and embalming solution, incisions were made all across the body. In April, uh, Voyabrov used perhydrol to whiten the darkened areas of the skin. When Lennon's body was transferred to the bath, alcohol and glycerin were added to it one by one. And in June, they then added potassium acetate. By the end of June, the liquid in the bath consisted of the following components. 240 liters of glycerin, 150 liters of water, and 110 kilograms of potassium acetate. Interesting. And apparently, and this part's really sad, um, after he passed while his body was being preserved and after, um, they let his cat come to visit him um, when he was laying in the mausoleum. Mm. And, like, that's really kind of a sobering moment, man, because, you know, animals make bonds with humans. That's, you Mm -hmm. know... No way to argue that. So, yeah, there's a picture here I can include um, because, oh, kitty. 
Oh, yeah, it's it's a little kitty kind of curled up, laying on top of a dead John John Lennon, <laughs> Vladimir <Yeah>. Lennon. <laughs> now, sad so, trombone. Here in uh, here in Kansas, we have our very own uh, mummified uh, body in mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Garden of Eden that's in uh, Lucas, Kansas. And now, have you been there yourself? Yeah, we actually, like two years ago, we took the kids there, and yeah. um, it, it's just a crazy batshit story. So basically, you have a guy who's also a mason. Um, uh, figures, he, am I right, folks? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, um, it's, uh, his name is, uh, let me look it up here. Sam Densmore, in his 1927 guidebook to the Garden of Eden, wrote that he was crazy. I am a bug house, he declared cheerfully, and everyone in the town of Lucas probably agreed. Densmore, among his many accomplishments, had dug up his dead wife from a local cemetery and entombed her in a mausoleum. Yeah, Sam Densmore. Okay, so he built, like, this house, like, brick by brick, um, and then... Like, I don't know, he kind of got crazy in his old age. So then, like, Mm -hmm. he thought he was, like, a self-proclaimed artist, which that's, like, Lucas's claim to fame. Like, it's the folk art capital of the world. So he built Mm -hmm. uh, the story of the Garden of Eden out of concrete around his front yard. So, like, you you walk through, like, one part of the yard, and there's, like, you know, Eve plucking an apple from the tree, and there's, like, a snake. Mm -hmm. And then he made... At the time, it was right after the Civil War, so he made some very political pieces out of, uh, like, concrete. And I mean, it's it's a cool house, and then it's got some contemporary, like, furniture and things like that. And then just to, you know, be able to see kind of, like, how the houses were set up and, you know, what life was like in, you know, the late 1800s. It was really cool. And then um, in the back, he had built his own mausoleum and had, you know, basically had kind of mummified, had had it set up to where his his body could be mummified. And so he was like in the glass coffin. And, you know, when you text me about your cousin finding those um, Masonic aprons and, you know, we oh, talked yeah, yeah. we talked about how, like, you know, as a Mason, like you get buried with your apron and he was buried with his apron. And so to be able to see like a guy who's been mummified for like over, you know, 100 years um, and, uh, you know, have that apron on him was really cool as a Mason it was kind of a cool thing to see. But. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was like a small earthquake out there and it had cracked the glass in the mausoleum and it allowed moisture to get in. <laughs> yeah. And so there's like moss and like, you know, fungus and mildew like growing on the body. <laughs> so, um, you know, some European royalty would believe you could make a tea out of that and drink it and absorb all his powers. Oh, yeah. Um, he he doesn't look like a good mummified body, though, so it's not like a really good example of how Kansans mummify people, but uh, it's still a pretty we cool just, thing. You know, bury him in a pile of wheat and place some Garth Brooks next to him. There you go. Uh, but it's, it's a cool little place to go check out, and the fact that it's kind of one of those other kind of modern-day mummifications, um, you mm-hmm. don't really think about, you know, people in this day and age, you know, being mummified. And he was just kind of like, fuck it. I've done everything else in life. I built the garden of being out of concrete. I'm going to mummify my body. 
Yeah. Now, is his wife, is her body still, his first wife, is her body still on display as well? No, um, it's just him inside the mausoleum. Now, there's like a separate um, mausoleum, but it's like, you know, it's not open to the public. And I don't think that casket's made out of glass. So I, I think it's uh, either made out of concrete or um, mm. it's in, like a wooden uh, coffin encased in concrete. So, yeah. It says here from RoadsideAmerica.com, The tour ends as it did when Dismore was alive, inside his 40-foot-tall limestone mausoleum. Dinsmore is entombed above his first wife. Oh, so maybe she's laying underneath him? Huh. Oh. In this photo-op concrete coffin beneath a glass lid. And then this girl says, uh, For more than 70 years, he looked pretty good. But the glass was cracked in the early 20th, 21st century, and air and moisture got in. So Dinsmore's face now is a greenish blob. <laughs> I've had some people complain that this is exploitation, letting people take photos next to his dead body. But I'll say this. This is what he wanted. He put it in his will that he wanted people to come see him. He wanted to be a permanent part of his artwork. Damn, there you so go. you got to see his face then, huh? Yeah, you get to see his face, and, uh, you know, he's still, uh, man, he's still buried in his best suit, even though it's kind of kind of a little a little mildewy. Uh, he's, he's got his best Sunday suit on. There you go. There you go. Well, I need to go there. You, you, you need to. Morbid curiosity has got the best of me. Well, let's wrap this up with a modern mummification that takes place over in Japan. Because sometimes, dear listeners, mummy life doesn't choose you, but instead you choose mummy life. You might think that the mummification process begins only after a person dies, after their last heartbeat. But according to Atlas Obscura, a small number of Shingon monks in Japan will begin to mummify themselves while they are still breathing. The goal of this practice is to enter a state of deep eternal meditation. And over the course of about 800 years, over a dozen monks have actually succeeded in making mummies of themselves. Mm. It begins with a pretty nasty diet that forbade the ingestion of anything but what could be found in the wooded mountains where they live in solitude leaving them to eat only nuts, roots from trees, bark, and pine needles. Thought to cleanse the spirit, this strict diet also eliminates body fat, muscle tissue, and moisture, ultimately beginning mummification of the body while the host is still alive. This is done for 1,000 days, alternating between foraging for food and meditating until the cycle is considered to be complete. Most of the Japanese monks then go through a cycle several times a day before feeling like they are truly ready for the final step, likely because the final step is death itself. They'll practice this until they stop eating entirely until it's finally time for them to die. At this point, They'll call on their friends to bury them in a relatively small pit with just a small tube leading to the surface for air so they don't suffocate, but instead will simply pass away due to starvation. 
The process still is far from over. A thousand years after the burial, the tomb of the monk will then be opened to see if mummification is successful. Only those bodies that show no sign of decay were considered to be successful and then will then be enshrined. All the others are discarded as basically a giant waste of time. Ooh, damn. Yeah. Now, we've covered stories of this before where people had discovered what they thought was a very interesting sarcophagus of a, uh, you know, a mummy but sitting cross-legged. And it ended up being a, a tomb where a monk had done the same process to himself. He mm-hmm. sat cross-legged in an upright position inside of a sarcophagus and then, you know, does the entire process we just mentioned. There was also uh, cases of uh, where, like in Tibet and in Japan, they found like golden Buddha statues. Mm-hmm. And um, they did like MRIs and found out that um, inside the 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 statue, like it was basically just like a, a casing, like a shell, almost like a yeah. Tutankhamun death mask. But yeah. ap- after the monk had performed this process, they're like, "Fuck yeah, man! It's fucking Buddha!" And so they they made him into a gold Buddha and encased the mummified yeah. body in gold. So, wow, yeah. Well, there you go, folks. You had a little history lesson, and you learned a little bit about some culture today. Yeah. This is what you get when we have to quickly make an episode in Mm -hmm. a day. (laughs) Oh, well, it was fun. Um, There's plenty more stuff to talk about mummies, so maybe we'll put another episode together in the future and uh, talk some more about this because, I mean, the list keeps going, man. I'd love to do an episode solely on people who live with their dead relatives. Oh, yeah. There was uh there was even one uh it, there wasn't a lot of information on it but like one of the articles you know they talked about like in other weird mummies uh there was a you know Barnum and Bailey's like sideshow back in like the late 1800s mm-hmm. uh they had like a bearded lady and she died so they like mummified like her body and then chopped it off right above the boobs so they just kind of had like this shoulder and torso and then a bearded head what? and yeah With they the just bearded kinda, head yeah yeah, and they just kind of lugged it around, and I'm just like, damn, I, that's that's crazy. Like, they just, well, you couldn't just take the whole body with you, so you're just like, nah, fucking lop it off here. So this is what people well, want to see. Well, I mean, see. it's easier to parade around and display a bust of somebody versus an entire body, you know? Yeah. Huh. That's wicked. I know there's also strange cases in China in certain areas where they have discovered redheaded mummies of people who were clearly not of Chinese descent, but more European. Oh, they yeah. Had red hair and red beards. Yeah, they had, uh, and actually um, in that region, uh, so the, you know, the Chinese government really doesn't want to talk about it. Um, so, that you know, there hasn't been a lot of studies done. Um, b- because historically, like, you think about the Chinese culture, like, they were kind of the first ones that had... Um, advanced technology. So, you know, they, they had like yeah. rockets, um, you know, they had gunpowder and they, they even like the tomb of the first emperor that we kind of covered on uh, an earlier show, like all the booby traps and everything that was inside. That's uh, what I you said, know, th- booby traps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh there i mean just they were just ahead of their time and so this idea that you find um these red hair mummies that are extremely tall like they're not uh they're not uh, modern day size humans these are like you know six and a half 
Um, you know, sometimes I think there was one that was like close to like seven feet. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, they have very Celtic like tattoos on their heads and they're like in their faces. And, and so the, the people from oh. that re- region to this day, genetically look more Caucasian than they look Chinese. So like, uh, remember a uh, big trouble in little China when they talk about mm-hmm. like, you know, the fair, uh, the fair skinned Chinese girl with the green dragon, green eyes. The people in yeah. this re- region have very much those those features, and then uh, there were reports of, um, and like the right after like World War II, when you had pilots flying um, overhead, like looking for like Japanese and things like that. There were reports that they found like certain pyramids, like white pyramids, but the description would match something like from maybe like you know Mexico or like the Aztecs. And the Chinese government just kind of shut it down because it's like, nope, Chinese have always been in China, China number one. Um, so the, the the science behind it um, really gets kind of, you know, pushed off to the side because the, the, just that, um, you know, the just the folklore and the history behind the Chinese people, you know, the government has pretty much written it in a certain way and they wanted to leave it that way. So the fact that you have these red hair, you know, mummified bodies, they're like, nope, don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Don't know where those bodies went. Never seen them. I mean, we have pictures of them and people, you know, have done studies before the government shut it down. So it's like, come on, China. Yeah. Get your shit together. Interesting. Huh. How bizarre. I'm a history nerd. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's cool, man. Maybe we can do some digging on that and talk about that more. Oh, yeah. Well, let's get out of here, shall we? Everybody, check us out on Instagram, PXL Paranormal. Check out the Facebook page, The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Check out 13 Nightmares. we got a couple more episodes coming out on that, hopefully very soon. Preston, what do you got for us? And as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, hell, if you want to grow a beard that's going to you know, allow you to be turned into a mummified bus paraded around at some Barnum and Bailey's <laughs> freak show, then go over and check out BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and get yourself some scents like Dundee Cedar, Bay Rum, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh Citrus, Mint, and Classic. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our friend Leslie and the gang down at CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca. All right, I think that about does it. On behalf of Steve, I'd like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us who love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that pixelated paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal your guide to the unusual and the strange.